So what are the potential pitfalls with the Alberta sovereignty within a United Canada Act? Bill 1 was tabled yesterday in the Alberta legislature. So joining us uh, for some analysis, uh, very pleased to welcome to the program here this morning, uh, Martin Olszewski, Associate Professor of the Faculty of Law at the University of Calgary, has uh, written a lot about these issues. And now we have uh, an actual uh, bill to digest here. Martin, thanks for making some time for us. Welcome to the program. Uh, Thanks for having me. Uh, So first of all, did anything, I mean, all the talk about what this, this law was going to be, were you surprised by anything yesterday? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of us were surprised. Um, you know, if I was going to summarize it as, as succinctly as possible, you know, the Premier would have us believe that to succeed in her fight with Ottawa, she needs to kneecap democratic accountability in Alberta. And and I don't, you know, that, that just seems like a very weird proposition to me. Um, you know, like when we look at the mechanics in this bill, you know, fundamentally, and, and, and others have pointed this out, you know, essentially what it, what it really, it doesn't do anything in and of itself. What it does is it essentially creates essentially like emergency type powers for cabinet to change laws uh, behind closed doors and, and not subject those, those changes to the normal sort of scrutiny that we see in the legislature. And so, you know, for just a whole bunch of reasons, um, you know, from an expediency perspective, even that just doesn't add up. And so, Inevitably, I think a lot of us are trying to figure out, like, why is it that the premier thinks that to, to beat Ottawa, she essentially needs to, you know, avoid or, or minimize or dodge accountability for laws here in Alberta? Yeah, that part did stand out as, as kind of surprising because that really hadn't been discussed, you know, as we went through the leadership race or the lead up to this. The idea of what's known, I guess, is, is a Henry VIII clause, uh, that, that never really came up. So, yeah, I think a lot of people were surprised by that. What, why do we call it a Henry VIII clause, by the way? Yeah, that's a good, those are all good points. You know, and, and, you know, it's so interesting because, of course, like, there's sort of like two streams or two worlds or two contexts in which we want to talk about this legislation. The one is like the sort of the theory, and, and we'll get into that in a second, like this idea about the separation of powers and what do we mean when we have... Like, what does it mean to have a de- democratic form of government? And then there's the like very just practical world of like, what practically does this mean? What is this going to mean for Alberta? Is this going to create the chaos and, and uncertainty um, that that you know many even of, of Daniel Smith's sort of leadership contestants uh, feared that it would? Um, and so then on the first point, right? You know, we just have this basic, and this was something that was signaled early on: the idea that this would be triggered somehow, like that essentially the legislature would sit as a court, right? That they would sit and pass judgment on federal laws and decide whether or not they're constitutional. Of course, in a functioning democracy, that's not how it works, right? In in a democracy that's governed by the rule of law, you have provincial governments that pass laws, you have federal governments that pass laws, um, and then you have courts, independent courts, uh, who are protected from politics, um, who are supposed to sort of like in a neutral way decide these matters, right? And so when there's a concern about a carbon price, or there's concerning a concern about the you know major project review regime at the federal level. Then you go to court and you say we we say that this is unconstitutional, and we wait for the courts to answer that question for us, right? And then we and then everybody agrees to be bound by that, right? Because we say that that separation of powers, the idea that the that the legislatures pass laws, but the courts interpret them and, and resolve legal disputes, that that's necessary. That we don't want all of that power in one hand, right? Because that that then gets us into sort of like very arbitrary and sort of like a very weird world where the people who pass laws are also the people who are deciding how they apply, right? And, and you can see why you wouldn't want that. But but we seem to forget that wisdom. So so that's 
So then here, literally, we know that the legislature, right, that's, the, that's one of the branches, these three branches, the legislature normally passes laws, and then cabinet implements them. Cabinet's part of what we call the executive branch. And so then a Henry VIII clause essentially means that that cabinet, the executive, which is just right a part of our government, one of the three branches, normally it can pass what we call regulations or subordinate legislation, but it can't usually change or amend laws that were passed in the legislature. And so then, but of course, like, like kings would have in times of old, you know, essentially the premier is claiming for herself and her cabinet the power to change laws unilaterally without the consent necessarily and oversight of the legislative branch, right, of all the MLAs in the House, uh, in the legislature. So that's why we call that specifically a, um, a Henry VIII clause. And again, it's this idea that it transgresses the separation of powers between the judicial branch, the executive branch, and the legis- legislative branch. Yeah, this point about you know identifying something as unconstitutional or even harmful without laying out a threshold, it's kind of like that, I think there was a famous uh, obscenity case in the U.S. Uh, many years ago where the judge said, when asked about what constitutes obscenity, mm-hmm. I know it when I see it. That seemed to be the premier's answer yesterday when asked about this. Yeah, right. And, and, and so again, and so there's this, the two streams here. One is going to be, you know, essentially provincial politicians deciding, you know, or in, in, claiming that a law is unconstitutional and or that they just don't like it, right, that it's harmful. That's that sort of second option, just that, you know, regardless of whether it's constitutional or not, you know, you could see a motion triggering the act that says, well, we just say it's harmful to our interests. And, you know, to the extent that it was, if it was just the latter, I, I think I, I would maybe find it less objectionable. But But the idea that politicians, I mean, politicians say all the time that they think something is unconstitutional. The premier before, you know, Premier Kenny, uh, he would have made those kind of comments. But I think it's different when it's merely a statement, even a motion in the House. It's different when you essentially, when you have legislation like this, that seems to create what I would sort of regard as like a parallel court system, right? So it's kind of like, you know, we have courts for deciding this issue, but instead of going to them, we're just going to create our own political sort of and politically charged sort of, uh, this, you know, tribunal, if you will, within the legislature. And, and on that point, of course, right, like, of course, the provincial government, you know, of course, the provincial politician is going to say that federal laws are unconstitutional, right? Like, like the, and, and that's why, you know, like, that's why we don't let politicians make these decisions. That's why we want judges who are independent and who are protected from the political branch to make those calls, right? So it's all just, it's all very self-serving. Um, and it's all just intended essentially, again, to, you know, uh, launch this machinery, which essentially just gives the cabinet, again, these sort of like emergency type powers to, to change laws. Um, when it's not clear, and, and I think, you know, the premier was pressed on this yesterday, and, and I hope that she continues to be pressed on this. Why do we need this machinery? You know, like, it's not like laws in the province take weeks or months to pass. If you want, if you're hard pressed, you can get a law passed through the legislature in, in, in days, if not hours sometimes. So again, I just, I don't, you know, that when, so then when you recognize that fact, you start to ask yourself, so then why are they, why does, why does cabinet need this power to change laws in this, in this sort of like non-democratic way? Well, and yeah, and, and to what end, right? You know, where might this apply? Like the idea here, I think the selling point has been somehow that, you know, with Daniel Smith as premier, we can kind of almost like exempt ourselves from 
living under Justin Trudeau as prime minister. If we don't like some of the things he's doing, we'll just simply create circumstances where it just won't apply here. But, but is, that, is that feasible? Is that realistic? Is that legal? Well, so this is where, you know, so there, and so there are definitely parts that are, are not legal. I mean, the, the, the mere fact that it sets up this sort of like parallel court system, I think, is, is one would be one legitimate ground that you could argue. Again, it's, it's been, you know, I can't point to precedent because um, it's never been done before. But I think that that's certainly an issue that a court would have to give, would give a court cause for pause. The, the other part that says essentially that, and so this is great. So then for your question, I think it depends on the area. Right. So I, I spend most of my time in the natural resources and environmental law area. And I have to say that on that front, I find it very hard to see how this act would in any way really affect Ottawa. And why I say that is because generally our federal environmental laws and, and resource regimes don't don't require the province to do anything. They don't depend on the provinces for enforcement. They don't depend on the provinces for implementation. The Department of Fisheries and Oceans, Environment and Climate Change Canada, the Impact Assessment Agency of Canada, they all have their own staff, their own employees, their own inspectors. So, And, and the Act is very clear that it will not uh, and should not be interpreted as, as precluding anyone except for, quote-unquote, provincial entities from complying with federal law. So, So right there, there's no way that this act can be used in any kind of direct way anyways, any kind of obvious way to, for instance, like restrict the application of the carbon price in Alberta. It can't be used to restrict the application of the impact assessment regime. If you're Suncor or Syncrude, you still have to conform with the Impact Assessment Act, which is going currently to the Supreme Court, I should say, on the question of constitutionality. Um, so, so, so from the, you know, to the extent that it's, that the resource context is the existential battle between Alberta and on Ottawa, then to me, this act seems the least applicable in that context. Where I'm not as confident and where I can't say as much is that whether, you know, in, in the health context or maybe in the childcare context or in this squirmish with the gun buyback, um, current gun buyback program, maybe in that space, there's enough sort of interlocking pieces between the federal and provincial government that, that this act could have an effect. If, if the province is going to say to its agencies, these provincial entities that you will not do X, Y, and Z to help the feds, then, then maybe there'll be some impact there. But, but I say on that point, again, the idea that the suggestion, the implicit suggestion that the, that a directive under this act could be used to compel the provincial agency to be non-compliant with federal law is in and of itself unlawful. It's interesting though. I mean, you know, the, the, the new gun law C21 could prove to be a fascinating case because there are examples uh, in in Canada where jurisdictions have at least deprioritized certain laws. Like we're not going to make that law a priority. We're not disregarding the law. We're just not going to um, make it a top enforcement priority. I think even going back to Canada's old abortion law, we saw some of that. So presumably or theoretically, uh, even absent this legislation, couldn't Alberta say, okay, you know, this new gun law that the federal government has brought in, we don't want that to be a top priority for law enforcement. We think they have bigger things to worry about. Yeah, and and so the trick is, you know, in all those instances, and I, you know, I, and I, I'm, you know, someone who knows them, those examples all more in more detail than I do might correct me, but actually, I'm pretty confident that you know, to 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 enlarge to a large extent, those sort of decisions were expressed as matters of policy, right? So they weren't. It's not that. 
you know, it's not that there was an absolute bright line that said we're not going to enforce this ever, but it was sort of like generally speaking, couched in sort of this kind of discretionary way, we are not going to prioritize this, right? The the the, the I guess the, the sharp line that it comes up against is that again, as a general rule, and going back to this idea of the separation of powers, once one once a legislature, whether it's the House of Commons or a legislature, a provincial legislature, passes a law, it is not for the executive to abrogate that law in a unilateral way. Like, it's, you know, we used to call it uh, dispensation, essentially. This was like, again, a, a power that kings and queens reserved to themselves to sort of be like, yeah, you know, the parliament, you know, and remember, this was like, we had bloody wars over this stuff, right? Revolutions <laughs> over this idea that a sovereign, the crown, shouldn't be unfettered when it makes uh, in, in respect to law, right? That, that the people should be passing laws and those laws should apply to everyone. That's what that's the core of this idea of the rule of law. And so if the legislature passes a law, the House of Commons, it is not for the executive branch, you know, now the premier and her cabinet to just say, well, we're dispensing with that law like, because that's not how democracies work. If you want to change a law, then you need to change it in the place where we've changed laws. And that's the House of Commons or the legislature. So even those examples, I think there was usually care was taken to not couch it in absolute terms. Here, again, we don't know how it's going to play out, but here there's this whole machinery and then there's these directives, right? And so those directives that that the cabinet would issue, those are very clearly meant to have legal effect. And so if, those, if the effect of those directives is to change a law duly passed by another level of government, we get into problems. So there's possible ways this could go. I mean, it feels like maybe this is bound for the courts in some respects, either a challenge to this, maybe a, a reference so the federal government could do that. I guess there's the nuclear option of, of disallowance. Um, or maybe this never gets used. I, I don't know. What, does any, do any of those scenarios feel more likely than, than others? I think that there is enough concern around this legislation, homegrown concern here in Alberta, that this legislation will probably be challenged the day it's passed or shortly thereafter. I, you know, and, and, and I will see how that plays out. Um, but, you know, I, I don't think, I, you know, I can't pretend or speculate, you know, what the federal government would do about it. But I think there's enough people who are concerned exactly about, still concerned about, you know, going out to the practical side the uncertainty, the, the the sort of like the unease around the potential scope of these powers and what it would mean for them to be used in any given instance, that I think that there are enough groups within the province that, that they will want to challenge it. Because it raises, again, it raises some just like core core questions about our constitution, about the division of powers, about the separation of powers. And so... Yeah, I, I anticipate that, you know, before before the ink is dry or shortly thereafter, and, and certainly before it's used in the spring, I think this law will be challenged. And so we'll get some clarity um, pretty quickly. And of course, it is also open uh, to the premier. And I think that if she, you know, she claims that this is all constitutional and on the up and up, you know, I think a very reasonable thing to ask her, uh, for the media to ask her, is then refer it to your own court of appeal. Refer it to the court of appeal right now and commit to having that reference heard before you pass this law. I think that that's absolutely something um, that she could do and, and should do if she really is confident that this law passes constitutional mustard or whatever that saying is. We'll see where it all goes from here. Appreciate the analysis and the insight, Martin. Thanks for making some time for us here this morning.
You're very welcome. All the best. Uh, that's uh, Martin Olszewski, uh, associate professor of law at the uh, University of Calgary. So some thoughts on uh, some of the potential legal or constitutional issues around all of this. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.